Our Father, we come with hearts filled with thanksgiving for the opportunity that we have freely to assemble, to study the Word of God, to fellowship with one another in Jesus Christ. And Father, we're grateful for even the things that are in the external world. We're thankful for the rain which is falling even today and for all the blessings which you shower upon us each and every day. Lord, we come to you requesting that you might be present in our hearts and minds, that you might take the words of your book and make them real to us, make them living and powerful. We pray, Father, that they will bring conviction, comfort, whatever is needed in each of our hearts today. We ask, Lord, that it won't be just information, but it will be true spiritual knowledge that we will gain through our time here today. We commit ourselves to you for your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to read the first four verses of Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. As we proceed through this chapter, we're going to discover that here we have the background for the moral and spiritual conditions of the end days of the antediluvian world, that period just before the great flood. And clearly what is revealed not only in these verses but in the verses that we will look at next is the precipitous spiritual degeneration and spreading violence that characterized the human race in these latter years before the great flood swept over the earth. Now, the verses we just read Genesis 1, 6, 1 through 4, describe what seems to be unusual phenomena that occurred as the human race multiplied probably into the millions, even though it's hard to know for sure about that. But if, if we're talking about at least a millennium and a half and maybe even more of time, two millennia, who knows how much time, Given the birth rate of those days and the low death rate, people living to be uh, most of a millennium, uh, the population would have exploded rather rapidly. Today, if you study uh, population statistics, you'll discover that uh, the birth rate out in the uh, world of the, let's say, the third world in, in the parts of society which have largely been unimpacted by social pressures of the uh, upper class and, and the modern world, uh, that the birth rate hangs in fairly commonly between uh, 4 and 5 percent. And what really changes or produces a population explosion is, is a decline in the death rate. 
uh, in, in these third world areas. And that's why, for example, after Europe moved into Africa and brought modern medicine and modern technology, the, the birth rate in Africa just, I mean the uh, growth rate, the natural increase in Africa just exploded. And Africa today is growing at a very high rate because the birth rate in, in many of the countries, particularly in Central and Southern Africa, have, uh, has been retained at a very high level. Uh, very commonly, uh, 4%, even over 4%. And as the death rate has been brought down, the population has grown very, very rapidly. And so as we look at this particular time uh, prior to the flood, with, where the death rate probably was relatively low, and the birth rate would have been naturally high, uh, it's very possible that we're looking at millions of individuals existing and spreading out across the earth. How far they spread, we don't know but it's very possible that they spread into several continents, at least those continents that were attached to each other. And who knows, they may have all been attached to each other at that time. There's, there's concern or question about that. We'll talk about it when we come to a very interesting verse a little later in, not today, but uh, a little later in our study of Genesis. Verse 2 of this passage has been particularly an enigma for Bible students down through the centuries. It focuses on the identity of the sons of God and the daughters of men. Now numerous explanations have been given down through the years, but out of it all has sifted out approximately four uh, interpretations which are the most commonly uh, accepted by various groups of people. And I have listed there, uh, them there for you uh, under Roman numeral 3A1A. First, the symbolic story or legend concept. Uh, some hold that what we're looking at here is merely legend. It, it's, it's just a story. It, it's not describing reality or things that really happen. In fact, of course, many of those who hold to that view believe that the whole first 10 or 11 chapters of Genesis is, is merely legend, it's mythology, it, it's a way of trying to explain the beginning to primitive minds and that it doesn't really have anything to do with reality. Now, the purpose here of, of this particular verse is to explain where the giants came from in mythology. Now, you and I all know, we've heard bedtime stories when we were children uh, about giants. And uh, this comes out of European mythology. But many parts of the world have mythologies which talk about giants, people who are of abnormally large size. Of course, some in the case like Jack the Beanstalk, where the giant's you know, tall as a multi-story building, up to uh, giants that are just you know, a few feet taller uh, than the average person. Now, the idea that this is simply a mythological attempt to explain the origin of giants is largely held only by those who are in the most liberal theological school, or those, of course, who aren't in any theological school just view the Bible as nothing but literature. A second and more widely accepted interpretation of this passage is that the sons of God is a term referring to the nobility or the royalty of that particular time, the aristocracy, the upper class, and that the daughters of men, that that term refers to the commoners. And so what you have is a violation of tradition of social customs and certain of the royalty now are beginning to choose commoners as brides, choosing them on the basis of their beauty rather than on the basis of their birth. 
Now, we think about the story of Esther, which is a little bit like that, where the, the king of Persia chooses uh, a relatively common, even though she wasn't totally a commoner because her uncle was uh, a very high-ranking official in the land. But nevertheless, she was not a native Persian by any means. Uh, and, and so that might be uh, kind of an idea. But you, you think of stories like Cinderella, where the king or the prince marries this, this cinder-sweeping lady. And, and some feel that that's sort of the idea that we have here. And that the phrase which says, whomever they choose, is introducing the idea of the harem, which, of course, as we know, was very common in the ancient uh, world, particularly in the ancient Asian world, for harems to develop. Again, this is probably pretty hard to support from the passage and, and not as widely held uh, as the next two are. Thirdly, we have a focus on the terms here, Ben Elohim, son of God or sons of God, and Beno Adam, uh, daughters of men. These are the actual Hebrew terms which are used here for sons of God and daughters of men. Now, we could note the fact that Elohim, of course, is a plural. And in this particular case, it doesn't have to be accepted as Elohim referring to God, but just gods in general. Could be. Many believe that the term means angels or angelic beings, and so that the sons of God here are angelic beings who are somehow empowered in order to bring about a physical union between them and human women. Now, if you've studied Greek and Roman mythology, and of course other mythologies too, but particularly uh, Greek or Roman mythology, you discover that there are several examples in that mythology where one of the gods uh, comes down out of the <laughs> heaven of Greek mythology or Roman mythology and has intercourse with a human woman. Probably the most famous example is where the god Mars, the war god, comes down and he sees this beautiful woman named Rhea Silvia and uh, she's there on the banks of the river uh, sort of sleeping and he comes down and rapes her. And out of this uh, union is born twins, Romulus and Remus, who are, are of course, therefore semi-god because they have a god as their father. And, uh, but she abandons these two because they're the product of rape, and the two are raised by a she-wolf. And, and they grow up to be rather wild young men, and one of them, Romulus, goes on ultimately to be the founder of the city of Rome. Now, really, nobody takes that for anything but total mythological uh, account. It's not based on any real evidence uh, at all. But uh, this is the idea that some are leaning towards in interpreting this uh, passage this way, uh, by saying that these are angels and the other are human women. This is fraught with many problems. First of all, we are told in Job that angels, uh, well, if you read Job, you'll discover that it says God talked about the time when the sons of God gathered and Satan came in amongst them. And it's clear that in that particular passage, the term sons of God refers to angels. So it, it's not totally a foreign to Scripture to interpret the, the phrase sons of God as being angels. The problem is nowhere in Scripture will you find demons 
called the sons of God. The fallen angels are nowhere referred to as the sons of God, and of course they are the only ones who would carry out such an unnatural act as this. So that's, that's a problem relative to that. Another problem uh, centers around the passage in Matthew chapter 22, where, uh, you know, the, the point of the verse is not the point I'm making, but nevertheless, I, I think from it you can get the idea. Jesus is, is talking about uh, the resurrection and, and being married in the resurrection and all of this. In verse 30 we read of Matthew 22, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of heaven. And the point is, apparently the angels of heaven are, are, are not capable of any kind of sexual union. And that makes sense because they're spirits. And spirits aren't capable of having a physical union as, as we have. Now, as you well know, uh, God created the sexual relationship for the purpose of multiplying, propagating the human race. And angels do not propagate in that way. And, and so for anybody to think that an angel could come down and impregnate a woman and thus create this is to fly in the face of clear teaching of Scripture. But thirdly under this, we have the possibility, though, that the demons inhabited human males. And thus the body used was a human body, but the force driving the action of this human body is demonic. Now the Septuagint, which is the earliest translation of Hebrew Scripture that we know about into the Greek language, translates this term, sons of God, as angels of God. That's the translation. And the Codex Alexandrinus, which is one of the earliest later uh, translations or uh, Greek, uh, uh, what do you call them, manuscripts in, in existence also has the translation angels of God here instead of sons of God. And so it's argued based on this that what we're talking about is that Satan ordered his demonic uh, subjects to inhabit thousands and maybe tens of thousands of human males and empower them to impregnate women for the purposes of generating a race of people who would be dedicated to Satan's cause. That Satan wanted to raise up an army of subjects on planet Earth to help overthrow God. It seems to go back to his early effort in the garden when he attempted to bring Adam and Eve into allegiance to him, apparently, for that very purpose. Now, it's very clear that demons can possess human beings. We discover this in Scripture, and that often their power is granted over to the humans, and they become superhuman to some extent. Let's just look at a couple of passages in Acts that are illustrative of this. First, Acts chapter 16, verse 16. Acts 16, 16. And it happened that as they were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. 
Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed, and turning and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out at that very moment. Now she was given a power that was not a natural power by the inhabiting demonic force or being. And uh, she was able to proclaim to people what was known in the hearts of Paul and those that were with him, but the others wouldn't know uh, that these are servants of the Most High God proclaiming the way of salvation, which, of course, uh, uh, the demon wasn't real happy about. And the fact that he was cast out indicates, of course, that his power was subject to that of God, and we know that to be clear. Let's look at uh, the 19th chapter of Acts, verse 13. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And seven sons of one Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was the evil spirit leapt on them, leaped on them, and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, obviously, uh, not only did the spirit have the power to speak through the individual, but the spirit had the physical power to beat up seven men through the body of this one individual. So demonic forces, individuals, or multiple individuals, can inhabit a human body and, and take it over. Some of you may have read the book called The Death of a Guru, in which it, it talks about how a particular individual who was uh, the son of a guru and was supposed to be raised up himself as a guru of, of Hinduism, uh, ultimately came to know Christ. And he talks in there about a particular encounter with a young man who was about 12, I think 12 or 14, somewhere along in there. Maybe it was him. I can't remember at this given moment. I've read the book so long ago. But anyway, there was this young man who, when faced with a threat, now his uncle was a, a bodybuilder, a weightlifter, and he had these weights. Now, all of you have seen these barbells, uh, well, whatever you call the big one, not the little barbell, dumbbells, but the big barbell, uh, which, with the big round metal weights on the end. And the incredible thing was this young, thin Hindu boy was so angry that he picked up the barbell by the little protrusion on the one end. With one hand, picked the whole thing up and swung it. Now, I, I don't care. <laughs> you bring anybody you want to bring today. I don't know of anybody who could pick a barbell up by that little hunk that sticks out on the one end of the whole barbell over here and lift that thing with one hand, you know, 150 pounds of weight hanging out there, pick it up and swing the thing around. And this was a 12-year-old boy, 14, doesn't really matter. The point is the power was given by the demon. It wasn't the natural human power. So from this, I think it's clear that it's possible for demons to empower a human being and to turn that human being into, in effect, a monster. And that's the idea here 
that some believe is applicable. And that these demons are also capable of genetic engineering, messing around with the DNA so that they could create or help to modify the human that would come out of the reproduction so that it would be an abnormal human being and thus the Nephilim, if the Nephilim were by definition giants. The concept of, of gigantism. Now some feel that this is supported in addition by particular condemnations by God upon the demon, demons themselves. Let's look, for example, at Jude, verses 6 and 7. Now some believe this a passage applies to those demons of the pre-flood era, the antediluvian era. And angels who did not keep their domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in, on, in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Some interpret this as being a reference to the, the demons of the pre-flood period who by inhabiting human beings helped engineer uh, a race of giants. Second Peter also is thought to apply to this. Second Peter 2 verses 4 and 5. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and, and, and on it goes. The point is, uh, they, those who interpret it this way believe that this is a reference to the punishment God brought specifically on those demons who in uh, obedience to, to Satan carried out this, this horrendous thing which they believe is described here in the fourth verse of the sixth chapter of Genesis. So, so far, we've, we've seen the idea that it's, that it's purely a mythological account. We've seen the idea that it's uh, royalty mixing with commoners and, and now much more likely to be true uh, the possibility of the sons of God being angels, the daughters of men being human beings, and, and that there was this particular uh, type of activity that came about. Fourthly, though, and the one most widely accepted, is the interpretation that the sons of God are the sons of the line of Seth, and that the daughters of men are the daughters of the line of Cain. Now this is accepted by many because it seems to be the most straightforward. It doesn't require us to try to do any mental gymnastics or try to interpret certain New Testament passages to, to support this particular position. It's the least fraught with difficulties of the four positions, especially if we take the phrase in verse 4, which says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and see it merely as a statement of fact and not as a consequence of this union. 
In other words, some argue that it's, it's not saying that from this union came giants, but just that in those days there happened to be also giants on the earth and that this is not related to the activity which took place. Now the question can, when you, when you begin to look at it this way, revolve, revolve around what, who are the Nephilim? Now this is not obvious right off the bat. The term Nephilim has been variously interpreted as fallen ones. It's been interpreted as wonderful, strong, mighty heroes, etc. Some have even envisioned this as a term referring to dinosaurs. There were giants on the earth in those days, meaning there were dinosaurs. But the passage seems clearly to lean towards humans, particularly since the term Nephilim is used later and, and does clearly seem to refer to human beings. So the safest definition of the Nephilim was that they were a race or nation of men. Now the Septuagint version does translate the term Nephilim as giants. Support for this seems to come from passages in the Pentateuch. Let's look at Numbers 13 for a moment. Numbers 13, verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size they also there also we saw the nephilim and then it gives a parenthesis the sons of anak are part of the nephilim and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight and so we were in their sight now this passage seems to clearly define the nephilim as people because it says the sons of Anak were amongst the Nephilim. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you are crossing over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, Great cities fortified to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? So it, it, it's not without uh, support that the term Nephilim is translated as giants, at least in some places. Now, you'll notice something important, though. In the sixth chapter of Genesis, the fourth verse, when it speaks of the Nephilim, it says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and then it says three other words, 
and afterward also. Meaning that the Nephilim existed before the flood, but they also existed after the flood, as we have just read in Numbers and Deuteronomy. So whatever we're talking about, they, they transist through the flood period. The Anakim, the Rephaim, who are defined as Nephilim, Goliath and his brothers are called, or apparently are, at least by implication, Anakim. So apparently the genetic potential for gigantism was possessed in the bodies of the eight individuals who were on the ark. Somehow that passed through the flood period and carried on afterwards, unless we're going to imply that there was another weird happening after the flood as before, but of course the scripture is silent relative to that if that is what happened. This idea would tend to negate any correlation between Genesis 6-2 and 6-4, that the sons of God and the daughters of men marrying, that that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with, with the Nephilim, if we see it that way. But as you read verse 4, it does seem to flow together as, as one description. And it does seem that, it, that the Nephilim could be the product of this particular union. Now I keep saying it could be and if and so forth, and I say that because if you go to the commentators and read this, you're going to find a lot of different statements made relative to this. There just isn't a cut, clear answer as to exactly what this refers to. Now you can go with one school of thought or the other if you wish, but you have to be open to the point of realizing that not everybody agrees on that particular issue as to who the sons of God were, who the daughters of men were, and who were the Nephilim, and is there any relationship between that union and them? I'm not saying that there isn't. I'm just saying that not all commentators, and I'm talking about good commentators. I'm not talking about weird people. No. I'm not talking about the people out on the extremes on the two ends. You know, the extremely liberal or, or the guys who go off the other end of the line. I'm talking about those who basically would be considered as conservative scholars. What we do discover from this passage, as you look at verse 4, let's read verse 4 again. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. It does seem if you follow the flow of the verse, that the Nephilim were the product and were therefore the men of renown. There's no doubt about the fact that if there were uh, several people around who were of the stature of Goliath, they definitely were going to be accorded privilege, right? Certainly they're going to be granted political power and, and they might even be worshipped as deities. And many feel that's exactly what happens as you follow through the next passages, well, the passages of Scripture that follow the flood, and, and the development of the society in Mesopotamia, and, and the gods and goddesses which uh, evolved in that particular part of the world who were the ancestors to Baal and Ashtart and, and the whole bevy of uh, gods and goddesses. 
and, and, and that this all has to do with these Nephilim and these giants and, who were political leaders, and from this arose the concept of these gods. Now, John Calvin looks at this particular passage and he says the only logical and biblical explanation of this is that this is the line of Seth marrying into the line of Cain. To him, yes, the Nephilim were real and they were men of great strength and they had a great commitment to evil, but to him the gigantism is incidental to the whole thing. It's just kind of a passing mark, remark made in Genesis and is not the, the concentration of the passage, is not the focus of the particular passage. Let me read you the words of Gleason Archer, who is a conservative scholar, uh, on this uh, particular passage. He says, what Genesis 6, 1 to 2 and verse 4 records is the first occurrence of mixed marriage between believers and unbelievers with the characteristic result of such unions, complete loss of testimony for the Lord and total surrender of moral standards. In other words, the sons of God in this passage were descendants of the godly line of Seth. Instead of remaining true to God and loyal to their spiritual heritage, they allowed themselves to be enticed by the beauty of ungodly women who were daughters of men, that is, of the tradition and example of Cain. The natural result of such marriages was a debasement of nature on the part of the younger generations until the entire antediluvian civilization sank to the lowest depths of depravity. The inevitable result was judgment, the terrible destruction of the great flood. So says Gleason Archer. I would say that if you were to range through the conservative scholars that the point C and the point D are the two most commonly taken uh, a, a translations or interpretations of Genesis chapter 6 verse 4. Now what's interesting is that the third verse is also debated to some extent. Verse 3 says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Now, the first portion of the verse is relatively clear. It seems to indicate that although God possesses the great and wonderful attributes of love and mercy, he is also omniscient. He knows all things. He knows them from the before the beginning of time to after the end of time. He, he, he knew us before we ever were born, as we're told in the Psalms. He knows, what, he knows when men and women are going to reject the working of his spirit and to forever harden their hearts against him. He knows that. This seems to be illustrated in, uh, for us and with further understanding in the first chapter of Romans. Now, we've made reference to this passage before, but let's, let's turn to it again. Romans chapter 1. This passage of Scripture answers so many questions that we have relative to things like are they, why are the heathen lost and, and many other kinds of questions such as that. <laughs> Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Verse 18. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. There is a natural revelation, in other words. For even though they knew God, and, and really I think we should insert the term about God, they knew about God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over, notice three times, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That seems to be a clear description of the same condition that prevailed in the antediluvian period just before the flood. That seems to be implied. And, and the first chapter of Romans was probably written with those in mind as well as, of course, later civilizations and cultures. We know that this seems to prevail today in many areas in the lives of many people. You keep reading in the newspaper all the time these horrible things that are happening. All the way from, well, I heard in the news yesterday that in the state of Oregon, 10 children in the first 10 weeks of this year have died of child abuse as a direct result of child abuse. And they said that's more than all last year in just the first 10 weeks in the state of Oregon. And these kinds of things are multiplying in our culture and in many cultures around the world. And so obviously it's not isolated to the antediluvian world. It's, it's, it's true even in our society today. So I, I think it's, it's pretty obvious here that when it says uh, that my spirit will not always strive with men, there is a point in which God gives them over. He knows that they will never turn to him. 
and therefore they're given over to the just result of their evil, just as they were before the flood. God steps in and said, enough is enough, and washed them all away. So he will do again, only as the song goes, by fire next time instead of by flood. The debated portion of this passage of the sixth chapter, the third verse, is not that portion of it, but is the latter portion. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Some think this refers to the period of grace that God gave humanity to repent between the time the statement was made and the time of the flood, or, or between the time that maybe Methuselah prophesied that this would take place and the time of the flood, that there, were, that there was a period of 120 years in which the gospel was, you know, the gospel of that day was preached and people had an opportunity to turn to God and to repent of their sin. And, of course, Noah is called, as we read uh, in, in Peter, a preacher of righteousness. So... His life was an example, but he actually proclaimed what he believed too. And, of course, the people of his day rejected it, save for his three sons, his wife, and his three daughters-in-law. But some say that is not is what is referenced here because Noah didn't begin, apparently, to build the ark until there was far less than 120 years to go before the flood. And we know this by looking at, at the uh, statistics that are given for the life of Shem. Shem wasn't born uh, in, until less than 100 years before the flood. And uh, thus the ark was begun after that, so there couldn't have been 120 years from the time God said build the ark until the flood came. There was a shorter span than that. So the argument is, and most commentators believe that this refers to human lifespan being shortened to a maximum of 120 years. From 8 to 900 years, shortened down to 120 maximum, which happened to be, by the way, the lifespan of Moses. This wouldn't happen overnight. It would be the result of conditions that would prevail after the flood. As, as the atmosphere changed and the water and land surface ratio changed, uh, there would be more cosmic radiation coming in which would cause the uh, body cells to die quicker and thus human beings not to be able to live. And maybe the atmospheric pressure would change. And as uh, we noted once before, some studies have shown that under higher atmospheric pressure, our body lasts longer than it does under lower atmospheric pressure. So if we could put more air up there, <laughs> uh, we could live longer, supposedly. So it's, it's not a good thing to live at high elevation, which is very interesting. If you, you, you follow any studies that have been made, people who live at high elevations uh, tend to have relatively short lifespans. And you cannot live a long time at a very high elevation. Those that have studied miners high in the Andes have, have discovered that if you push them up to 17,000, 18,000 feet, they won't last long at all. They start losing an appetite, they start losing weight, they start becoming unconcerned about anything, and if you keep them up there, they will die for long periods of time. You've got to keep bringing them down in order for them to uh, continue to be able to work at that elevation. So uh, that may be what is being referred to here. Genesis 6-5. 
Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We have a terrible indictment here of the human race. First of all, it says that wickedness was great. Then it says that every intent of the heart was evil continually. Constant thinking of what evil to do next. I mean, you get this feeling that it was a total a prevalence throughout the human culture of that particular time. Now, God had sent preachers of righteousness. He had sent Seth, and, and we know he had sent Enoch, and Noah, and possibly the others in between. Scripture doesn't say specifically. And they had preached righteousness. But wickedness nevertheless just explodes across the earth. And it begins in the fountainhead of the evil thoughts of men's minds. Jesus made it, I think, clear that sin begins in the thought life. Sin doesn't just happen to us. It comes from our minds. You know, our, our, the uh, Gnostics will try to tell you that the flesh is evil. You know, it's the body that's evil. Your, your mind is really good, but that's really not teaching a scripture. The body is neutral. The body is not in and of itself evil. It's the mind or the heart, whatever you want to call it, that uses the body that's evil. Let's look at Jesus' words in Matthew. Matthew 5, verse 21. <clears throat> you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go to, into fiery hell. Then down at uh, verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. So the point that Jesus is making here is it begins in here. It begins in the thought life. You, you wish the person dead. You wish that person to be your, you know, sexual mate or whatever. And that is the root of the sin. It's not the actual driving in of the dagger or the actual intercourse that takes place that is the sin. It begins in the mind, and the, the thought already generates the sin, and then it's simply carried out in a, in a physical action. So it says that the men and the women of that day, of this antediluvian world, allowed their thoughts to be continually focused on evil. And we're living in a society where that's becoming more and more easy. In fact, it's harder and harder to escape it, if you haven't noticed. 
television is, is not improving, and neither are most of the other media sources in terms of presenting that which, which generates lustful thoughts in the heart of a person in whatever way the lust might happen to be focused. With the thoughts so focused, the total being is totally open to the attack and the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let's look at Romans 8 for a minute. Romans 8, verse 5. To me, this really puts it in succinct, clear terms. Romans 8, 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That doesn't mean that we in our bodies can't please God, but those whose minds are set upon the flesh cannot please God because the body will follow the mindset and simply becomes the vehicle by which the intent of the mind or the heart is carried out. So where should our minds be? Well, there's a very convicting passage. You may not want to turn to it. <laughs> In Philippians 4, verse 8, it really becomes sort of the general rule for Christians Easy to read, hard to apply. <coughs> Philippians 4.8, Finally, my brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, let your mind occasionally touch on these things, no, dwell on these things. Our problem is where our mind dwells. Where does it dwell? We have to consciously, purposely cause our minds to dwell upon that which is good and lovely and of, of good repute, as, as it says in this passage. It doesn't happen naturally. You remember the old song, the folks are dumb where I come from, they ain't had any learning, but they're happy as can be doing what comes naturally? A baloney. Doing what comes naturally is of the evil intent of the heart. And it doesn't necessarily come from education. It comes from knowledge of God that we are able to do what is right. We have to choose. And if we do so, I wonder if we make this our, our conscious effort, what it does in terms of the reading material we read and the kinds of stuff we watch in television and in theaters and so forth. It's pretty hard today to find much of anything that doesn't fill your mind or at least lead your mind off into evil intents. We get a little magazine called the Movie Morality Guide, which uh, surveys the movies as they come out, and I'm, so, I'm glad I'm not one of the reviewers having to go watch all this stuff. But they tell you what's going on in these movies, and they count the number of times even that a profanity is used and all this kind of thing. You must have to watch it more than once to be able to count all that. 
but they talk about what's in it, and it's very, very hard to find a movie that doesn't have either strong anti-Christian bias of some sort, more and more coming out that way, which the Christians are portrayed as either nincompoops or total hypocrites, and unfortunately there's been a few who have given an excuse for that, um, you know, totally sexually oriented or totally violence oriented or just so full of profanity and vile terminology that you don't have to see it, you just hear it. That it seems like th they come out twice a month and, and if there's one movie they can actually recommend in a whole month, that's doing pretty good. And, and usually that's a movie you hardly ever hear of. And so when you think about this, I mean, what does that passage mean to us? Now, the, the scripture teaches us that we have to put on the whole armor of God. It's really easy sometimes after you've had a hard day, you know, your mind's all exhausted and your body's sink down into the chair and turn on the boob tube and watch who knows what. And, and there's no resistance there to what's evil. And sometimes we have to just take ourselves, take a hold of ourselves and, and, and invoke the Spirit's presence and, and maybe not even turn the thing on. Maybe we need to focus somewhere else. You know, there, there's got to be a way whereby we can live honoring in an honorable way before the Lord without being accused, as we have been accused on occasion, of spending all our time reading the Bible and praying, which is, I wish it were true. <laughs> you know, it's so far from the truth, but we've been accused of that by somebody very close to us. And, um, <laughs> you know, where do you find that place where you, you live according to Philippians 4.8? And, and carry on life as you must carry it on in the flesh. I don't mean living for the flesh, but I mean we do live in the flesh. And, and we have to, to take that into consideration. Well, oh dear. Uh, what we find in this passage, and I'll just wind it up here and we'll, we'll pick up from there next time. But uh, so vile did mankind become in this antediluvian period that the passage of Scripture says that God was sorry he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Now, that's, those are strange terms. If, if you know God, the God of this Bible, you look at those terms, you think, well, that's a little bit strange, isn't it? It's sort of like God was caught by surprise. No. Next week we'll look at what the meaning is of that because the Scripture clearly teaches from the beginning of the book to the end of the book of the immutability of God. He never changes. God is the same, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he doesn't say, whoops, I shouldn't have done that. No. It looks that way to us, but that's not really what, it's being, what is being said. And we'll, we'll focus in the beginning next time as to why that's so.